in case you need a new Instagram handle, Digi Hippie, we're we're checking, we're running that down for you. Hope to have it for you by the end of the podcast. And, and we do have Wreck It Ralph Hope Chapel available. <laughs> Wreck It Ralph, unfortunately, is already taken. Jesus declares that on occasion a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. Hey friends, this is Disciples Maids Podcast, season two, episode four. The season that we're in is five shifts that a COVID-19 world requires. And we're talking about the second of those shifts today. Talking about moving from having professionals to all of God's people, just a little subtext. There is a line in the uh, church between those that are professionals and those that are, should we call them lay people? Laity. Lay people. Laity. People that don't participate perhaps as much as some level of volunteerism and what we're trying to do. Can we just pause for a second? Please. Does anyone want to be called laity? Really? What are we doing? We're lying down over here. We're laying down. <laughs> That's who we are as God's people. We don't want people to lay down. We want people up and in the game. We believe that there is a false line between church leader and church participant. We are all missionaries. And we have a guest on today's show that perhaps more than anyone in the Western Hemisphere has invited but not just invited, empowered and released you know God's who he is? people. He's wrecking Ralph, man. He's wrecking Wreck-It that Ralph. He's wrecking that line. <laughs> Wreck it Ralph. Rob, you know, there are times that, that you just amaze me. That was one of those times. Wreck it Ralph. A distinguished man, gentleman. You just called him Wreck It Ralph. And he's, he's being very patient. He's, he's wrecking you. that caste system in the church, man. It, <laughs> am I right, Ralph? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, too. Ralph, I'm just grateful for you, man. You've shared your story with multiple networks around the country and Exponential as well. A lot of people have heard your name. Thanks for the opportunity to just kind of sit down with you in a casual environment and let us ask a couple of questions for you here on the Disciples Made podcast. First, just give us a quick background of what you're doing right now in ministry and kind of the one thing that separates you from some of the others in this in this field across the country and around the world? Well, right now I run a, a blog and a podcast and I've been starting to put some stuff on YouTube. And my goal is really the little guy. I started coaching pastors. I mean, I've coached pastors all my life, but I began to do it for money about a year ago. I started getting overwhelmed. And so uh, some big churches came to me and I actually didn't want to do it. So I out a number that I thought they'd say no to, and they said yes. And then I felt uncomfortable with that. If I didn't get the lead pastor, I was wrecking what they were doing. I was wrecking rough. I, I, I have always been kind of a disruptor in the, the church growth movement, in the seeker-driven movement. If I was in the room, I was causing problems. And I didn't like those people very much, to be honest with you. What you guys were talking about, the laity, I, I would not use those words, or if I had to, I'd say what other people call the laity, I call missionaries. I'm trying to put together a little package where I'm producing some materials that aren't on my website that are just really meant to help the guy with maybe 120, 140 people who might be a little discouraged. Uh, maybe the COVID thing is has hit them harder in different ways than they thought. I think it's a wonderful time. Time, uh, I mean, sad that people are dying, but 
a wonderful time of opportunity for the church, and I'm very excited about that. So uh, right along those lines, Ralph, you started this new ministry to try to empower a person you call the little guy, and I don't, I know you're saying that with true affection, like the person that maybe might get ignored in other scenarios. You want to give them your very best resources, and you've talked about in essence, the grief over the loss of life in COVID, but it's also a gift. So I want to ask you a question along those lines. Andrew Crouch, near the beginning of the pandemic, this would have been back in March, he poised this question. And we're curious to hear what your answer is now, almost a year into it. Is COVID just a snowstorm? Is it a winter season or an ice age for the church? So again, we're what, nine to 12 months into COVID-19. How would you answer that question and why? I would say it's a winter season. I don't think it's just a snowstorm. The effects are, we've already begun the post-COVID era. We're not even yet to the peak, but the, the changes that people are going to have to be making are already being made. Medicine is forever changed. Education is forever changed. But I think it's changed not, I don't think we're in for an ice age as the church. I think we're looking at winter turning to spring. And this may take several years to play itself out. But, you know, the old saying when I was a child, there was a some kind of a little nursery song or something about April showers bring May flowers. Uh, well, I, I, I can remember growing up in Oregon and in February, poking up through the, the snow and the ice, you begin to see crocus and daffodils appear. And I, I think we're seeing that now. So to me, it's, it, it's not a pivot point. It's, it's an accelerator. We're seeing an acceleration of the processes of churches dying that I think is kind of a healthy thing because at the same time, we're seeing people activated to do ministry that were never allowed to do ministry before. And so this is this is good times for us. We're learning to do digital. We're learning that some people are going to want to keep watching church in their bathrobe. And uh, we're going to have to figure out how to do that and have it not be an isolating experience with a talking head. There has to be some kind of interaction going on. And all these things to me are just, I'm excited. I'm 75 years old and thrilled with the technology that, that Jesus invented prior to COVID. I think it's a wonderful day. I want to ask just one other point of question. So it's winter turning into spring. So it's like Narnia, where it was always winter, never Christmas, but Christmas is coming and there's going to be a spring. What's the top one or two things that you're most excited about springing up post-COVID? I think the, the incredible response to almost anything that we say or do. I wrote a book for Exponential about microchurch and about microbible church planters. And I'm shocked, to be honest with you. I, I thought this is going to be a little blip. It turns out that people are coming right out of seminary saying, teach me how to do this. And So microchurch is one of them. Microchurch isn't going to be a fad. This is something that's going to stay. Yeah. And I think DigiChurch is another one. I know of two pastors who both said one is a church that started out with about 300 pre-COVID. They popped about 5,000, and now they're at about 2,500 people around the world. The other one is unusual because they're, they're not really a church planting organization. They do plant churches, but they're more of a extension kind of a campus deal. And when COVID hit, they're in Hawaii, and they started looking to Italy because Italy was so bad off and figuring out how to do dig, digi church. They've gone from about 7,000 people to where they, they popped, like everybody else, to about 60,000. And they shrank back. They shrank back to about 25,000 people in pockets around the world. And these guys are both pastors have said 80% of our budget now is going toward digi church. 
We've told our staff, if you want to remain with us, your job is going to have to be modified. We are a digi church that happens to have a physical location. And so I think the use of technology is uh, an exciting new opportunity for the church. So if Digi Church is going to stay, is Digi Ralph going to stay? What's Are you Digi Ralph? <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm, I'm Digi sorry, Ralph yeah. or not. I, I'm doing pretty much pretty much everything digitally. Exactly. I, in fact, one of the things that happened to me is I was taking pre-COVID, I was up to about 15 trips a year. And I'm an old man. And so all this time in the year, and I go to places like Mongolia and South Africa and Europe and Japan a whole lot. And suddenly I'm finding this is pretty comfortable, you know, spending five hours with my friends in Japan and I didn't have to leave my house. It's a lot better than spending 11 hours on an airplane to get there and then five hours to get into Tokyo. This is pretty good stuff. I'm liking it. I, I like G. Ralph comment. It is so true. Ralph, I first heard of you when Dave Ferguson started sharing the five different levels of church health or church reproduction. And he said, there's one level five individual in our country. Can you quickly share what number five means? And just like in a very quick nutshell, the number of reproduction that's kind of in your wake at this point? Because I think it's critical to give that kind of context before I ask you the next question, which is a very pastoral question. So so we know of over 2,400 churches, and we've never really kept track. When I got involved with Exponential, they started asking me questions. I thought there were about 1,400 churches. So I did a survey, and all it was, we were hippies, so we didn't keep we just didn't do that. And so I just went to my Outlook contacts and started emailing people. And then I'd email who they told me to email and I'd follow it on down. I built this monster spreadsheet. So we know there's about 2,400 churches. There were 2,300 at the time. And then some people who never answered the questionnaire got mad at me and said, how come you didn't list our churches? So we don't really know how many there are. What I do know is one place that we go nine generations deep of church planter to church planter, and most of those guys found the Lord in the church that launched them. What I'm looking for as a benchmark is four generations, and I will say that most guys are one and done. It's the old 80-20 deal. 80% of our guys planted one church, and that was all they ever did, but the people who drank the Kool-Aid at least went four generations out, and by the third generation, they don't know my name, and I don't know theirs. And I think that also is a benchmark of success for us. That's the way I saw it in disciple making as well. I used to feel an obligation to everyone in my strand. And then I thought just, you know, family speaking, I may get introduced to my great grandchildren, but they're not going to remember me. I don't remember my great grandparents. So why in the world would we try to impose something unnatural in a disciple making relationship? So level five is a church that has reproduced up to four generations on multiple strands. And you're saying you're down into the ninth and beyond on multiple multiple strands and that there's 2,400 churches perhaps in the wake. So that's like mind boggling. A lot of the folks listening to this podcast are going, I don't have a category. I don't have a file to put that in. But the reason I wanted to put that information out there, Ralph, is because this next question is really where people can start. And I believe most church leaders on this call, because of their training or because of the modeling that they've seen growing up in the church, they look out on any given Sunday from the pulpit, platform, whatever we call it, and they see a lot of sheep that they need to feed. But when you look out, and as you have looked out, you've seen and see something very different. What do you see, and how did you get to seeing people that way? 
And how has your definition of church changed over time as you've carried that out? I really love uh, this time together. This is really good. I think that uh, one of the things that frustrates me is I see so many books, uh, so many offerings that are out there by people who have maybe planted one church and now they're the expert. We were struggling. I mean, we were small, but I, I was very fortunate. I was mentored by two different individuals. And by mentored, I mean, it was really arm's length. They weren't close. They never discipled me. But one of them, of all people, was Robert Schuler and uh, Crystal Cathedral. And he got the ball rolling when he would always chant every member of missionary. Now, what he really meant was grow this church into a big church. But what I took it to mean was what I got out of the only tape I've ever listened to by Chuck Smith in my life. I, I heard him publicly. I had a relationship with him. I saw all the Calvary guys kept listening to Chuck tapes, and they all sounded like Chuck. And I thought, I want to do what Chuck does, teach the Bible, but I'm not going to listen to Chuck because I want to be rough. And one day I got frustrated. Ephesians 4, 10 to 13 drove me nuts. It just didn't fit what I'd learned in Bible college. And I came up with a conclusion, but I thought this must not be right because it's not what the church does. So I went and got a tape from Chuck at a Bible bookstore. And he really taught me that it's what Shuler said, every member a missionary and uh, apostles, prophets, you know, apes were there to equip the saints to do the work of mission. All I ever saw was, uh, this is a classroom on Sunday. We're going to do lab during the week when we get in our small groups and learn how to minister to each other. But but the world is our oyster. We're hearing words like everyday missionaries and uh, mobilizing members for, for missions. That was just kind of our bread and butter. We lived by that. And so we defined the church as a force. I, I see that people define the church as a mission field. That's largely the seeker-driven thing. Uh, come to church and find Jesus. Others see the church as a fortress. Uh, we're going to hide out politically in the church because people are against us. Uh, we saw the church as a force that needed to live it out in the community. Ask a short question, you get a long answer. I apologize. That was a long answer. Now, it was actually shorter than what I thought. I want to ask a quick follow-up question. Seminal moments in that, like you hear a phrase like that, every member a missionary or whatnot, and you, and you, so you adopt the mentality, and then you start to put it into practice. And then pain points inevitably come where you have to listen to your own sermon, and it's costly. Like, do I really want them to be a missionary, or are they my volunteer, or my mission? Missionary, or were there any like defining moments in that process that if you hadn't have crossed through that line, you may not have seen the results that you've currently seen? Yeah, the first church that we started, I mean, we did it illegally according to our denomination, which was, you know, one, but that was minor. But the, the big deal was that they took 20% of the people out the door, and my best friend is the pastor. And so that was a pain point, and we decided to celebrate that. And, uh, you know, we became hero makers before we ever heard that word because uh, we were still struggling. Uh, we were a church of about 125. We sent 25 of our people out. We actually grew that Sunday, so today. We're still in that mode where you're still kind of shaping up. And so every week I would start the sermon by saying, so this is what happened at Branch of Hope last week. And that helped us to get through it because we rejoice together and all that. Okay, I have a, another follow-up question. So that original group of 120, which now has turned into a movement of 2,400 churches, what were some of the key ingredients that created a culture where that could happen? 
And then the second question would be a little bit more nuts and bolts. Like, was there a specific training pathway that emerged? Was there a particular set of tools that were integrated into the training pathway? Well, the interesting thing was the mantra of Calvary Chapel at the time became ours. And, and, and that is you go where you get fed. But to us, feeding meant that you're equipped to do the ministry. It didn't mean you're equipped to grow as a Christian or grow in the Lord, whatever. Several of us had come from navigator backgrounds, and we became frustrated with the eggheads who knew more scripture than everybody else wanted to argue about it. So that shaped our culture. But as a young pastor, a lot of what happened, I, I think, was the Holy Spirit. I mean, it just had to be, you know, I'm a Pentecostal. That's my background. I'm actually a Wesleyan right now, but I, I come from a Pentecostal background. When we hear about the leading of the Lord, it's people are always waiting to hear that voice. And I did a couple of times, and it's like, I'd rather not. That disrupts your life. But I think that, that God sometimes leads us just by our, we think it's our ignorance, our mistakes, but it's really the Lord. And so I just came up with this great plan. I'm going to teach the book of Philippians because it's positive, and that'll be a good starting point. And then I'm going to take them into Acts, and, and we're going to spend a good part of a year going through Acts and learn how to be a church. And then we'll go to Romans because we get some really good doctrine, justification by faith. And then by that time, we should have plenty of problems. And so we'll go to First and Second Corinthians. And I started three churches in my life, and that's been the pattern. And so that kind of teaching, for, for one, we're, we're telling you, the church looks like Acts chapter 2, the last seven verses. And secondly, our purpose is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And then here's our manual. Let's let's go from there. And so those things sounds really simple, but they encompass the culture that just kind of, you know. And then the other good thing was that we started with almost no Christians from other churches. Some of our guys had visited a denominational church during the hippie days. And they showed up with long hair and, you know, torn jeans and a couple of guys are barefoot and they weren't allowed in. And then they found us. And I'm still the suit and tie, three-piece suit guy and all that. And I remember the day a guy kicked a hole in the door. We we're both trying to open it. And I went home and cried tears. God, why did you send me these people? And I don't belong here. And, and then I learned to accommodate to the people that were there. But that that was really freedom because... We didn't have all that churchiness. And I had grown up in that churchiness enough that when I began to read things like uh, Ephesians 4, I reacted against it. And and so we were we were very reactionary. Today, all, all the Hope Chapels that I know of, not all, but most, are changing their names. It's a cool thing to, to change your name, you know, rouse an old person and all that. And that's exactly what we did when we were young. And so people get all upset about you know, they're disloyal. I think, no, this is wonderful. Go for it. Do it. The second part of your question, one, one of the things that impresses me about you guys is that you're so strategic. You know, you, you talk about you want to be in 50 cities. Uh, we, we were kind of, and, and I see this as a handicap for us. It was kind of, well, you just go where the Lord tells you to go. Well, had we, you know, when we were in Hawaii, we um, eventually, we pinned a map of the state with little little gold map tax hmm. for every McDonald's in the state. That was as strategic <laughs> as we got. And we decided if they needed a McDonald's, they needed us. And we made it. We hit we hit every every town that had a McDonald's, including Waikiki, had a, a Hope Chapel. But then we ran out of gas. It's like, well, what do we do next? Standard oil gas stations? And we're just at a loss. So that 
kind of hippie-fied thinking hurt us in a lot of ways. But one of the things that we felt like was uh, two words that I like a lot are align and sync, that everything should be aligned and synchronized to mission. Maybe six years in, we had we'd moved from a hodgepodge of community center, little church building, rented nursery school, all these things up and down Manhattan Beach Boulevard, Manhattan Beach, California. And we moved to a bowling alley that was more than an acre indoors. It was up on stilts with parking underneath. And the church today owns, I don't know, like $52 million worth of property. We bought it for $300,000 and remodeled it ourselves. But we went from being those hippies that church people had visited to now being uptown because we're at Artesia and Pacific Coast Highway, very famous intersection overlooking the ocean and all that. So suddenly, we're a church. We went from like 400 people to 800, and there's a Rolls Royce in the parking lot. And I made it my business to not find out who owned it. There's Mercedes next to rusty Volkswagens, and people are, you know, inside the church. Some of our staff are wearing suits to church, and we just lost our identity. And as we struggled to come through that, we had a guy come and do a teaching about health in the church. And we realized that as a as a bunch of young hippies in the Jesus movement, we had a whole bunch of Bible studies that just popped up. Well, the Jesus movement had died. And so now you've got to kind of figure out how to do church. And we looked around. We had no small groups. Maybe there was a few, but virtually there were none. And so then we, we started something we called mini church, which was our, we threw away our midweek prayer meeting. And I remember the numbers. We, we were a church of, we'd gone to about 800 and about six weeks later, we're at about 600. And we're shrinking pretty fast. Our midweek had about 85 people. And we, we went to seven houses to do what we called mini church, which is going to be a reflection of Sunday morning's teaching. And we popped from 85 people to 365 in seven big houses. And that was a mistake, the seven houses, because we got police called on us and that kind of thing for crowding the neighborhoods. But there was a need. But it took a little while for us to get off. And we started out kind of egghead. Uh, you know, what do you get out of the pastor's sermon on Sunday? And it sort of morphed into a realization that this has to change the way people live. And so we began to ask these questions. And this, you know, we've bolted a lot of stuff onto this. And you know, a lot of times I like to show a picture of a Model T Ford because, you know, they bolted on snowmobile equipment. You could make a Model T Ford into a, a sawmill if you wanted to. They made race cars. So so this is the real stripped down Hope Chapel because we did do men's ministry and we did do couples ministry and we did that, but we didn't pop around. In, if I ask people, what's a direct path from getting saved in your church to becoming a missionary to Japan? Because that was always our story. We had a very clear path. And the clear path was you get into a mini church and somebody there is going to start out by asking you these three questions. What did the spirit say to you while the pastor was talking, which maybe a little different pastor said, but now you're, you're putting your life out there and sharing life with people. Second is what are you going to do about it? Which now makes you sort of accountable to yourself. And then the third question is how can we help? And we found that people's spiritual gifts just begin to happen. And then as we did that, every, everything was sort of lined up with what was going on on Sunday mornings. Well, then we took the same model. And if people saw people following you, because that was our definition of a leader, you have a follower. 
So you may be still doing drugs, but somebody's following you and they showed up in mini church following with you. As you begin to get your life ironed out, somebody asks you, would you help me lead this group? And eventually they'll ask you, would you take over this group? Because I'm leaving it. I've discipled you in this fashion. And so that's where we started, only started new groups by breaking off from old, which built into our culture. Uh, we hive off to plant churches. And then there was a training venue that only the leaders of the mini churches were allowed to come to because we wanted to create an elite. If you don't do something, you can't be trained. You start out by doing, then we'll train you. And then we just, we read a lot of books, hundreds of books, you know, like four or five a year. But um, the same three questions out of what may have been a secular book, what did the Holy Spirit say to you? What are you going to do? And how can we help you get there? When you're starting to do this at a leadership level, the things that people are going to do are things like, well, I'd like to create this microchurch downtown Honolulu with business people. You know, how can we help you do that? And so it just kind of fed right into the stuff that was going on in the community. I hope everyone is hearing that answer, the profound simplicity of that answer. You can have all the structure, all the design, all the intentionality, but if you don't have people asking what the Spirit is teaching them and training them essentially to be led by the Spirit and not by you, the leader, nothing's going to awaken that has this type of multiplicative impact. So huge and so profoundly simple, too. I mean, we could make this much more complicated, but three questions. Not Monday morning quarterback, like how did the pastor do or what did you agree or disagree with? That's a mental game. But what did the Spirit teach you? What are you going to do about it? And how can we help? Those are the questions that we have every week in our triads. What did the Spirit teach you in the reading? What are you going to do about it? How can we help you? One last question, Ralph. The kind of vision that you have realized even though you're saying perhaps that early on you didn't have so much of a game plan. And then as the game plan you know, evolved, it may not have been as big of a game plan as, as resulted. But the vision that you committed yourself to, seeing missionaries and seeing them equipped, that's a serious long game commitment. And how hard was it early on to persevere when the flywheel wasn't flying on its own momentum? Like, Maybe one or two experiences where people told you you were going the wrong way or you questioned whether or not you were going the right way that you ended up staying the course. Was it hard? And are there a couple of events you can remember? Honestly, I had a guy once ask me, he got mad at me in a, in a symposium we were doing. And he, and he kind of took me on in front of a whole bunch of people. It's kind of weird. And he goes... You're not the soft-spoken kind of guy, easygoing guy that you you can't be to get done all the stuff that you say that you did and and all that. You've got to be, you know. But what he meant was you 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 lead with the iron fist. And I go, no, no, you don't understand it at all. I am the most high-control individual you ever met in your life. But it's not because I care about people's behaviors. I don't care at all. I just taught them how to think. And once you taught them how to think, you didn't have to worry about anything. So I, I, there's a certain almost, there's a sense of, of knowing I'm right, almost the point of arrogance that saw me through the dark days of secretive in churches, because every time I went into any group, I was the odd man out. And yet I believed firmly that, you know, people always said, oh yeah, planting churches, that's what Hope Chapel does. And I always said, no, no, planting churches is what every church is supposed to do. 
And that picked a lot of fights, honestly. And I remember another man, and I won't name him, who was a mentor to me, again, from a distance. I had known him a lot longer than either I knew Schuler or Chuck Smith. But uh, this guy was a, a major figure in my life. And at one time, well, we were at this big event, and I had sounded off about something. And he cornered me in the, in the men's room. And he goes, you're just too idealistic. That's your problem. You're just too idealistic. And I, I just took that as a compliment. It was like uh, he was mad at me. And, and I didn't back down. And I just thought, well, that, that's really good. So I, I did have people trying to discourage me along the way, but it never really did. And as a young person, I was in a Bible quiz, which is kind of a silly thing to think about in the 21st century. But I memorized the Gospel of Matthew. And I saw Jesus at war with the Pharisees. And that did something to me. And then I got into the, a Bible college in my second year. I, I got mad at them. And again, a little bit of arrogance, 19-year-old punk kid stuff. I decided I'm going to read the book of Acts five days a week, the whole thing. And so for about eight months, I, I read the book of Acts, the whole thing, at least five times a week. And so you take Matthew and Acts together as a continuum. I see Luke and Acts as a continuum, but take uh, you know, fighting against the religious establishment. And then uh, here's the church in its infancy and things that in their infancy are immature. And so in its infancy, the first five chapters are all about getting big and how they got big. And even in Judea, they were multiplying, but it was about big. But as, as the church matures, uh, it's about multiplication and disciple making. That got inbred in me. I didn't know what to do with it. I met a person later on who kind of, you know, coached me in church planting, and he had done it, but he had done it in the Philippines, and he actually told me it'll never work in the United States to plant churches with guys who didn't go to seminary. You know, it it, it ended up it did. Wow, I think there's a a very fine line between arrogance and confidence that comes from the spirit, not in tone. I mean, we can tell arrogance; we can say that's arrogance, but you can have confidence in the spirit and what he's told you that can certainly look arrogant, particularly if it's not popular. And I'm just thinking if I was listening to this podcast and didn't kind of know your background, there's a part of me that would say, I want to be able to dance a little bit closer to that line, perhaps in order to not be arrogant or perhaps to not be an abusive type of leader. Like there's so many yucky pictures of things uh, today. And I think my personal story, Ralph, is I avoided any type of assertion toward that because of the negative pictures out there and because I didn't want to fail. You know, I just didn't want to set myself up to fail. So there was a lot of reasons that I chose not to be spiritually more aggressive uh, with some of the ideas that I had. But if there's anybody on the call dancing around that emotional dilemma, do you have a word for them, an encouragement? Stay humble. Just stay humble. You, you know, teach people how to think. Do not try to control their behaviors. Uh, those are the negative stories where, where people are broken by some strong leader. And, and I want to just be there to support them. I love that. And I love what you've done there. The one thing that helped me overcome those fears and that sense of intimidation and that sense of false bravado was the stories of what happened in people's lives. Like you start asking those questions and then you see the spirit light up things and lead people to where that were bigger dreams than you might have had for them. And uh, it was as I saw those kind of stories start to accumulate that I thought, you know what? I really don't care who comes at me anymore. I've seen the goods. I've seen heaven 
shape a life and redeem a family in, in exponential ways. And for that, I just took a bigger, bigger, bigger step. So my encouragement would be, friends, go back to the question we asked Ralph about what he sees on Sunday morning and begin to turn your heart away from being the person that's responsible to feed them all to the person that has been stewarded the opportunity to train, to empower, to release. Connect them to the Spirit, not just your teaching. Ralph, tell people how they can connect with you. What is it? <laughs> Digihippie.com? <laughs> no, it's actually um, uh, ralphmore.net. Ralphmore.net. It's a gateway into a bunch of other stuff. It's a gateway drug. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a gateway drug. I love it. <laughs> well, if that's the drug, I certainly want a piece of it. You have shaped how I think. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us on today's edition of the Disciples Made Podcast. Thanks, Ralph. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com.